Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast. I'm Vas Christodoulou. This week, my guest is Ginny Smith, a science writer and presenter whose work investigates what psychology and neuroscience tell us about human behaviour. She told me all about the latest science of sleep, love and learning. Ginny, your new book, Overloaded, is a guide to the role of brain chemistry in human and animal behaviour. But by the time brain chemistry reaches us non-scientists through the media, it tends to be extremely simplified. You know, serotonin is the happiness chemical, dopamine is the pleasure chemical. And you're here to debunk that and give us a tour of the brain that shares some more nuanced insights. We should say at the outset, and this is a very fast-moving field, and everything you share with us on the podcast is current knowledge at the time of recording. (laughs) But it could be replaced by the time listeners hear it or read your book. Tell us how you came to take an interest in the science of human behaviour. So I actually um, came to neuroscience relatively late. It was sort of halfway through my degree. So I went to university to study chemistry because I'd always been really interested in science. And of the three sciences we did at school, chemistry was my favourite. So I applied to universities to do chemistry. I ended up going to Cambridge and the course that you do there is called Natural Sciences. So you can't just study chemistry from the beginning. You have to take four different subjects in your first year. And I picked kind of on a whim one called Evolution and Behaviour, just because I thought it sounded kind of a bit different and interesting. And I absolutely loved the behaviour lectures. There was just something that clicked for me, this idea that we could use science and scientific principles to investigate ourselves and why we do what we do just absolutely fascinated me. So in my second year of my degree, I ended up moving away from chemistry and studying neuroscience and psychology and then kind of specialising in in that and the crossover between them in particular, how you can take what's going on in the brain and use that to explain behaviour was the bit that really fascinated me. So I, I was very lucky, actually, that I kind of ended up in a course that had that flexibility. Let's start with a lesson in neuroscience, Neuroscience 101. What is a neuron? How does it communicate with other neurons? Neurons are the kind of main type of brain cell that people talk about because they're the ones that send messages. There are other brain cells, other kind of types of cell in the brain that have other jobs, but the neurons are the ones that send signals to the brain and to the rest of the body. They look quite funny. They've kind of like a spidery thing at each end and then a long bit in between, or a lot of them do. There there are various different shapes. And that allows them to send messages over quite long distances. And they can send these messages using electrical signals. So it's kind of like the electricity starts at one end and then does like a Mexican wave, uh, if you can imagine, and then ends up at the other end. So it sort of travels along it. But the bit that I'm really interested in and that I dug into in the book is actually the gap between two neurons. So our brain is made up of this huge kind of interconnected web of neurons. But if you zoomed in on them, where they connect, they don't actually touch. There's a little gap in between. And we call that gap a synapse. And 
there are a couple of different ways synapses can work, but the most common in the human brain is what we call a chemical synapse. And that means that the electrical signal comes in, travels along that first neuron, it gets to the end, and it causes the release of chemicals, which we call neurotransmitters. Those kind of diffuse their way across the synapse, and in the edge of the second neuron, there are little receptors which the chemicals bind to and when enough of them have bound that can cause changes in the second neuron. So the most common chemical in this system is called glutamate and if glutamate is released by the first neuron the neuron that receives it will send a signal if it receives enough of it. So you've got electrical signal, chemicals being released, second neuron receives the chemicals and sends its electrical signal and that's the kind of basic way that messages get sent around the brain. What's the difference between a neurotransmitter and a hormone? So they can be the same chemical sometimes. The difference is where they're found. So if we find a chemical between two neurons, we call it a neurotransmitter. If it can be sent in the blood and sent to the rest of the body and cause changes in the rest of the body, then it's a hormone. There are some chemicals that are just one or just the other, but there are also some that can act as both. And hormones tend to stick around and affect us for a lot longer than neurotransmitters. Yeah, they can do because they're traveling in the blood. Once you've released them in the blood, they're then sort of there and they make their way slowly around the body and have their effect on different organs, depending on what the chemical is. Whereas neurotransmitters are released and then they bind to their second neuron very quickly because it's a very, very tiny gap. And then they're sort of sucked up or they're sucked back into the first neuron which kind of recycles them so yeah they don't hang around in the synapse for very long so this this allows the brain to have these kind of two different levels of chemical change i guess in that neurotransmitters can cause very short-lived changes very um quick easy to change ones and then hormones can have these longer lasting impacts on you so with that under our belts, let's start our tour of the brain. And where better to begin than with the heart of what we feel makes us us, the ability to learn and remember our experiences. What can neuroscience tell us about how we learn and remember? Yeah, so we're starting to understand the kind of cellular process that underlies learning and memory. And quite interestingly, a lot of what we know about this doesn't come from humans, but from studying other animals, because of course, there's real limitations on what you can do to a human in a lab and it's very expensive doing experiments on humans so a lot of the kind of basic learning and memory experiments were done on this weird creature called a sea hare which is a type of sea slug it's this weird kind of blobby thing but it's got a siphon like a little kind of tube that sticks out of it and if you poke it it sucks in that siphon but it can learn over time. So if you repeatedly poke it, it will realise that that poke isn't a threat and it will stop sucking in its siphon. So loads and loads of experiments have been done on these creatures and they have very big neurons and nowhere near as many of them as humans do. So that allowed scientists to kind of start to unravel this process. And we now know that there's a very similar um, process that goes on in human brain. So basically, when you're learning something new, what you're doing is you're strengthening the connections between neurons. So when we look at long-term memories, they're stored in the cortex of your brain, the surface layer that's all wrinkly if you've ever seen a, a model of a brain. And they can be stored kind of distributed across it. So it might be a set of neurons uh, that are all spread out. And that means that 
you can store millions of memories because you've got millions of neurons and you're using combinations of neurons for each memory. So there's this huge amount of storage there. But these kind of networks of neurons have been strengthened through repetition. So if you activate a neuron, it releases glutamate, it activates a second neuron. But there are also changes that happen if you repeatedly activate those pairs, that network of neurons over and over again. So the first neuron will actually start making more glutamate so that when that electrical signal comes in, rather than releasing just a little bit, it's got lots to release now. And the second neuron can start making new receptors so that rather than having just a few receptors, it's now got lots. So if you imagine before you were releasing a tiny bit of chemical and there were only a couple of receptors to receive it, after learning, you're now releasing loads of the chemical and there are loads of receptors. So that means that this process of getting that first neuron to activate the second can happen more quickly and more efficiently. And when that's happened, we say that that synapse has been strengthened. And that's what's happening during learning. So if you think about the process of learning a new skill, uh, at the beginning, it feels really difficult. You have to really think about playing the piano or driving a car or whatever it is that you're doing. But over time, you strengthen those networks of neurons that are involved in that. And it becomes much easier for the signal to travel. And it becomes a lot easier to do whatever it is that you're doing. I like to think of um, the brain as a bit like a really thick forest. And the first time you try to do something new, you're having to carve a new pathway through this forest. You're having to push back brambles and cut down branches. And it's really hard work. But the more times you walk through that same pathway in the forest, the more open it becomes and the easier it is to travel along. And I think of that as a bit like what happens when you're learning in the brain, that the more you do something, the more you repeat it, revise that fact, practice that skill, the easier that pathway is for the information to travel along and the more securely the information stored in your brain. How and why do some memories get stored for the long term while others disappear? Yeah, that's a really good question. There are a few things that we know impact that. Um, so one is emotion. Uh, your brain stores emotional memories more strongly, more securely. It's more likely to store memories that are emotional. And we think that that's an evolutionary benefit. So you can't store everything that you experience every day. I know I said there's a huge amount of capacity in your brain, but it would just be overwhelming and it would also be unnecessary. I don't need to remember the colour of my curtains every day because I know that that's the colour and doesn't change. So there's no point storing the kind of boring stuff. So what your brain looks for is things that are important. And evolutionarily, that is things that are important for your survival. So if we imagine our ancestors, if they met a predator, that would be very emotional, scary experience. That would be a bad thing, but it would be something that they really need to remember. So your brain would be more likely to store that information. It also stores positive memories. So if you found a new bush full of berries that tasted brilliant, your brain would store that information because that's a really important thing to remember. So that's one thing that we know impacts what is stored and what isn't. Your brain also does a lot of kind of processing and a lot of this happens while you're asleep. 
So memories are kind of stored temporarily and we think this happens partially in the hippocampus, which is a region deep inside the brain. And then over time, their memory becomes stored in the cortex instead of the hippocampus. And how exactly that process works is still under debate. But there's a lot of processing that goes on during the night. And what your brain seems to do is it sort of extracts the gist of whatever you've been learning. It looks at what you've already got stored that might be relevant to it and kind of fits in new information with old information. So you're more likely to remember things that agree with things that you already know, which isn't great news really because this we think is one of the reasons why it's very difficult to get people to change their opinions on things because your brain looks for and stores anything that agrees with what you think whether that's a political opinion or a scientific bit of knowledge and it doesn't remember the stuff that doesn't agree um uh, so yeah, so there's a few different things that can affect why things, some things get stored and some don't, but with, it's a process that's still being kind of fully unraveled. So our memories are stored in the brain, but unlike footage on, say, a video camera memory card, they're very susceptible to revision and falsification, aren't they? Can you tell us a little bit about why that is? Yeah, so um, physiologically, what happens is when you recall a memory, it enters this state where it's a bit flexible. And it's a very similar state to the one it was in when it was originally stored. And during that time when it's flexible, you can take in new information and kind of update that old memory. And that's, again, a really useful strategy, because if you have a piece of knowledge that you want to change, you can do that rather than having to store a completely new memory. You can go, oh, okay, I thought this was the case, but now new information has come in. Let's revise what I thought. But it can also mean that we can accidentally change memories. And I know a lot of us have experienced having arguments with our partners or our parents about an event where we're convinced that we remember it exactly as it happened and they're remembering it wrong but they're absolutely convinced that they remember something slightly different. And a lot of work on this was done by a researcher called Elizabeth Loftus. And she did a load of brilliant studies where she managed to implant completely false memories in people, like convincing them that they got lost in a mall when they were a kid and that had never happened, or making them think that they'd met Bugs Bunny at Disneyland, even though Bugs Bunny is a Warner Brothers character, so he would never, ever be at Disneyland. And she did that by getting them to recall memories and then kind of twisting them a bit, telling them information, getting them to imagine things that had happened. And actually, she went on to do some fascinating work that has changed the way we treat eyewitnesses, because we know that even the question that you ask someone after they've witnessed an event can change the way they remember it. So in one of her studies, she got people to watch videos of car accidents, and she asked them how fast the cars were going. But in one group, she asked them how fast they were going when they bumped into each other. And another group, she asked how fast were they going when they smashed into each other. And the smashed group estimated they were going about 10 miles an hour faster than the bumped group. And then she got people back a week later and asked them if they'd seen any broken glass on the floor 
are in the video. And the smashed group were much more likely to claim they'd seen broken glass, even though there wasn't any. So just one word of difference when asking someone to recall an event can actually change the way they remember it, which is really important information to have for the police and for the criminal justice system. Someone else who did some fascinating work on memory and learning and how our environment can change that is Conrad Lorenz. Can you tell us a little bit about him? So he was actually working with animals and he's most famous for his work on geese, baby geese. So when goslings are born, they imprint on usually their mother. And what that means is that the image of her is sort of stuck in their brain and they will then follow her um, for the next few months until they fledge. And he was really interested in what it was that caused that imprinting. So he did a whole bunch of different experiments trying different things, seeing what he could get them to imprint on. And they'd very happily imprint on him. He also got them to imprint on a a sort of football and all sorts of different things. And it turned out that it had to be a large object and it had to move. And basically the first thing they saw after they were hatched that was large and moved, they decided that's their mum and they're going to follow that for their whole childhood. Um, He did a whole bunch of other interesting work and it's actually quite an interesting story when you start digging into the ethics as well, because he was also interested in domestication and how that affected animals. But he was doing his work around the time of the Second World War. And some of his work was picked up by the Nazis and they started using it as kind of... Oh, so he also did some work on hybridization, so animals of different species. And he was looking at, for example, geese that were raised by ducks and ducks that were raised by geese and how that affected them later in life. And the Nazis sort of picked up on this and started using it as the basis for some of their ideas of eugenics and the idea that if you mixed races, you might be weakening the species. So it's it's quite a sort of sobering story as to how research that looks on the face of it quite innocent can be twisted and there's some debate over whether Lorenz himself was complicit in some of the the awful things that the Nazis did around that time Um, he claims he didn't know how they were using his research at the time but whether that's actually true is is kind of yeah a bit of an open question but it's it's fascinating how how research can be can be twisted and can be used not for the good of humanity as well as so much of the research that is done does end up helping people but in the wrong hands it can also be used for for evil. You've touched already upon the importance of sleep for memory formation and learning. You know, some people, famously Margaret Thatcher claim they can get by on very little sleep. I think Margaret Thatcher said four hours was enough for her. But this isn't something you would recommend, is it? Why is that? 
It really isn't. So some recent fascinating research has found a couple of families who seem to have a gene that means that they can get by on about six hours sleep without having any ill effects. But it is so rare that you are more likely to have been hit by lightning than you are to have this gene. So if you think you have it, you probably don't. And if you don't have this gene, you might feel like you're getting by on that little sleep, But in the long term, it's likely to have negative effects on you. I find sleep absolutely fascinating. And partly it's because we still don't understand it. We don't know exactly what it is about sleep that is so vital. And we don't even know why we sleep. But we do know some of the processes that go on during sleep. And one of them, as we've already talked about, is this memory processing. So we know that Uh, sleep is vital for learning. If you haven't slept well, your hippocampus isn't in the right state to form those new connections. So you can't take in information very well. If you don't sleep after you've learned something, your brain doesn't do that processing and it doesn't get stored for the long term. So if you're a student or for some other reason you're learning, don't stay up late studying. Sleep is more important than studying if you want to actually be able to take in and store information for the long term. But there's also other processes that go on while we sleep. So we know that getting enough sleep is vital for being able to regulate your emotions. Poor sleep is linked to all sorts of different mental health conditions. And I certainly know that I get much more emotional and kind of tearful if I sleep and my husband gets very, very grumpy. And we think this is because your ability to damp down your emotions kind of reduces. So normally we have this kind of reactive limbic system, emotional system deep in our brain that reacts to everything. But our prefrontal cortex just behind our foreheads kind of keeps it in check and goes, no, no, calm down not as big a deal as it seems, you can relax. And when we aren't getting enough sleep, there's a bit of a disconnection between these areas, they don't interact as well. And we don't seem as able to regulate our emotions. And there are some suggestions that this might be part of a spiral that can lead to depression. It's a bit difficult to tease apart because depression can also cause sleep problems. So knowing which came first can be quite difficult, but they definitely seem to be linked. There's also a process that goes on while we sleep where the brain is kind of cleaned. So while we're awake, we have fluid kind of surrounding our brain that cushions it and it also flows a bit within it. But when we sleep, our brain's cells actually shrink slightly and kind of move apart and the fluid can wash through them much more easily. And this seems to be important for cleaning out byproducts that have built up during the day while your neurons have been busy doing their all their different jobs. Um, these kind of little fragments of proteins and things can build up. And then at night, they get washed away. And some of the proteins that are involved in this process have also been linked to Alzheimer's disease. So one idea is that if your brain is not rinsing them away enough, they might build up more and that might contribute to Alzheimer's. Again, there have been links found between poor sleep and the kind of precursors to Alzheimer's disease, mild cognitive impairment. But Alzheimer's disease and mild cognitive impairment also seem to cause poor sleep. So again, it's one of these kind of cycles where it's quite hard to work out which is coming first. But there are all these different 
kind of regulation, processing, cleaning things that go on while we sleep. And it seems like getting enough sleep throughout your life is one of the most important things you can do along with eating well and exercising to keep your brain healthy for the long term into old age. What advice would you give listeners who are struggling with their sleep? It's a really tough one because I'm not a particularly good sleeper and actually people telling you how important sleep is can almost make it worse because you're lying there going, <laughs> oh, sleep is so important. This is making me really anxious. So yeah, it's it's not easy and there isn't a kind of one size fits all solution. One thing that does seem to be important is setting your circadian rhythms. So there are kind of two ways that our brain knows when it's time to sleep. One of them is based on how long we've been awake. And it measures this by the buildup of this byproduct in a particular area of the brain that is produced during the day and then reduces during the night. Um, This chemical builds up and your brain goes, "Okay, I've got lots of it. It must be time to sleep. But the other process is our circadian rhythm or our body clock. And that helps keep us in sync with day and night. And the body clock going wrong is what causes jet lag when we travel. Not that we're doing any of that at the moment. But if you remember back, if you travel to a different time zone, then your circadian rhythms are still set to the original time zone. And you want to sleep when it's daytime and be awake when it's nighttime and you feel awful. But over the time that you are in the new time zone, you can get back to normal. And that's because your circadian rhythm can be set by light. So normally we get bright light in the morning. That is sent to a part of the brain which detects that and knows that it's morning. And then in the evening, the light starts to get dimmer. That information goes to the same part of the brain and it triggers the release of melatonin. And melatonin is a a chemical, it travels throughout our brains and it helps kind of trigger that shift from the wake network to the sleep network. There's a whole host of other chemicals involved in these two networks. So this melatonin is just one of them that helps trigger this shift. One of the problems now is that, of course, we've all got loads of artificial light surrounding us. And this can make it really difficult for our body clocks to stay in tune with when they should be releasing melatonin. And also, a lot of us don't necessarily get bright light in the morning if you work indoors, for example. um, So you're not getting those changes in light that your brain needs. So Cheating that can be really helpful. So going for a walk first thing in the morning and then trying to make sure you dim your lights in the evening. Maybe use a blue light filter on your devices because we think that blue light has an even better effect than the redder tinted lights on this part of the brain. When I'm in the UK, I use an SAD lamp, which have been designed for people with seasonal depression, where we think in certain people not getting enough light can actually lead to depressive symptoms. But I use it in the mornings in the winter to help set my circadian rhythms, because if I get up and it's a really dreary, rainy, cold, dark day outside, sitting in front of this bright light for half an hour helps me sleep that night. So yeah, trying to kind of use these little tricks to keep your circadian rhythms on track can be helpful. And then there's lots of stuff around kind of sleep hygiene. So making sure it's dark and cool and quiet when you're trying to sleep, trying to use your bedroom 
only for sleep and possibly other nocturnal activities, but not working in your bedroom, not watching telly. Try and keep that as a room which is restful and kind of separating. I know this is something a lot of people are struggling with with working from home, is that not having separation between work time and rest time. So if you have at least keeping work out of the bedroom so that your brain knows when I walk into this room, it's time to shut down, it's time to relax. You can also do kind of relaxation activities. So things like mindfulness meditation or body scans, progressive relaxation, those kinds of things to kind of try and tip your brain from from wake to sleep. It's a very finely balanced system. And yeah, little things can make a difference. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics... Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. Another area where many of us might appreciate some scientifically guided advice is our love lives. Scientists have broken down love into three parts, lust, attraction and attachment, each with specific brain activity and neurochemistry. But not all the research into love and sexuality is as rigorous or robust as it should be. Why is that? Well, it's not as diverse as it should be, I think is the big problem that I ran into with this. Because, I mean, it makes sense because a lot of the time scientists start by studying animals. And in animals, attraction and lust are aimed at making babies. And therefore, they tend to be between a male of the species and a female of the species. Not always. There are some examples of homosexuality in animals. But it does tend to be based on making babies. In humans, these things have got completely separated from making babies. Most of the time, what we're doing when we're attracted to someone, when we feel lust or when we're attached to someone is not about making babies. It's about all sorts of other things. And human gender and sexuality is a spectrum, a really wide spectrum. But that's really quite difficult to research. So scientists... Because you only get a limited number of participants, they tend to try and make things simple by sticking with heterosexual, monogamous couples when they're looking at couples and heterosexual people when they're talking about attraction. And that means that they're missing out on the huge spectrum of people, which would make it a lot more interesting. It's not exclusively. There has been some research done on non-straight, cis people but not as much as I'd have liked to have seen and I do I do have some sympathy for the scientists because the more groups you include the more expensive and complicated your research becomes but it does feel like we can't really extrapolate a finding if it's only investigating this one very specific type of person A huge amount of science research is also done on university undergrads, because if you're a professor at a university, they're a very easy sample to get. So again, we tend to know a lot more about well-educated, white, young 
middle class people than we do about all the other people who make up our diverse world. And also tends to be Western because a lot of the research comes out of um, Western universities. So I, yeah, I, I found it really interesting researching this this chapter, but I did feel like I had to start with quite a big caveat, which was that most of the research I talk about has been done on these groups. And that's not because I feel or or necessarily that the researchers feel they're the more important group, but they're the majority. So they're easier to get research on. And also historically, I think we weren't as kind of open to the differences in human sexuality and gender that we that we are starting to be today. It's obviously not, there's a lot of work still to be done, but I think we are starting to realise that a lot of people don't fall into that category and, and that's great and that should be celebrated and should be investigated as well. So with those caveats in place, let's <laughs> begin with lust. What is it, scientifically speaking? Lust is is basically the desire to have sex and evolutionarily that was put in place to drive animals to make babies. So a lot of this research is done in animals and a lot of it is driven by our sex hormones. So those hormones that you've probably heard of, testosterone, estrogen, those sorts of things, we get surges of them and they're often referred to as male and female hormones but that's a bit of a misnomer because both genders have both of them just in different different proportions. But it does seem to be those that drive that kind of desire to have sex. So in a lot of animals, for example, the females will only be interested in sex when they are fertile. So we talk about animals going into heat and starting to behave differently because they've become fertile and enter this period where the desire to mate has begun. In humans, obviously, lust has separated from this desire to procreate and humans can feel lustful even when they're not at a fertile point in their cycle or when they're unable to have offspring. So it has kind of separated out a bit, but that is the kind of the basics of it. What's going on in the brain when we feel an attraction to someone? Scientists have actually put people in brain scanners and shown them photographs and looked at kind of different areas of the brain that are involved. And we know that when you see someone that you're attracted to, there is more activity on average in the what we call the reward areas of the brain. And these are areas that kind of drive you towards something. But then there was one really interesting study that it was very important whether the photograph of the attractive person was looking at you or not. So I think they found, if I'm remembering this correctly, that there was activity in the reward network if the person was making eye contact with you, but there wasn't if they weren't making eye contact with you. So again, that could fit quite nicely with a kind of evolutionary theory that if there's an attractive person who's also looking at you, you should probably approach them because that might be an opportunity to make a connection. Whereas if they're determinedly looking away from you, that's bad news. You don't want an attractive person to be looking away from you and you probably shouldn't approach them. So again, this is an example of how scientists will have thought something for a long time that when you look at an attractive person, your reward system lights up. But it wasn't until someone thought to do this difference in the experiment that we realised it's actually a bit more nuanced than that. 
Are there universal traits that are considered attractive everywhere around the world and through all periods of human history? There is quite a big debate over this because there's a lot of studies that will argue that there are. Some of the most commonly cited things are waist to hip ratio. So there's a perfect ratio that's cited as um, being the most attractive uh, woman to heterosexual men as having this this perfect small waist, big hips, but not too dramatically different. But when you look at cross-cultural studies, actually it's not as consistent as you might think. And then when studies... So this is often done by drawing little cartoon women and changing their waist-to-hip ratios. But then when scientists looked at changing their overall BMI, their kind of apparent weight, it turned out that was an important factor and possibly a more important factor than their waist-to-hip ratio. And then there's a lot of argument that this is an evolutionary trait, that if you have this perfect waist-to-hip ratio, that's a sign that you're fertile because oestrogen drives fat to deposit on the buttocks, thighs and hips, whereas testosterone drives it to be deposited around the middle. And that's one of the reasons that at menopause, women often find that their waists become a bit less defined because their uh, hormones change slightly. So the argument is that if someone has this very defined waist, they must have high estrogen levels, they must be fertile, and that's attractive to men because they'll be able to make babies. But the evidence is that you can make this cartoon woman a ridiculous shape that would never exist in real life. Or if it did, she probably wouldn't be able to breathe, let alone make a baby. (laughs) And they find that more attractive. So this idea that it's an evolutionary thing is definitely an overstatement, I would say. Generally, what is deemed attractive is people who are relatively symmetrical, in their facial features, things like clear skin, bright eyes, shiny hair. And again, these are all kind of deemed to be markers of health. But it's really, really hard to separate the effects of culture on attraction from the effects of evolution, because we're all brought up in an environment where we're flooded with images and told this person is attractive, this person is unattractive. We're taught from an early age that disfigurements are linked to evil. Like if you think about kind of baddies in even kids' shows, they often have scars or something in their face that is is asymmetrical. So how much of that is actually an evolutionary, okay, I want the healthy partner, so I want the symmetrical one, and how much of it is taught is basically, it's really hard to tease apart. And this is where studying humans becomes really difficult because you can't take a bunch of babies, raise them in an environment where they're not exposed to any outside media and then study what they're attracted to because you just can't do that. It's not ethical. So we, it's really difficult to pull apart the effects of innate drives, evolution and culture that we're surrounded by all the time. What role do pheromones play in attraction? So I would say in humans, the likelihood is none. Um, But I've bought some really expensive stuff off the internet. (laughs) Is it working for you? (laughs) Not so far. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so 
there is a real lack of evidence that humans can respond to pheromones at all. We know that animals, a lot of animals respond to pheromones. Pheromones are just chemical messengers that are released into the environment and that cause a change in the behaviour of other members of the same species. So it can be all sorts of things. They can be used for communication, but often they are used for attraction. So a female silk moth releases a chemical. When a male silk moth smells it, he starts doing his little mating dance. And that will work for any male silk moth. Studies that claim to have been done and that often that claim this might be a pheromone effect, when you look at the data, it doesn't quite stack up because usually what we're finding is that some women are more attracted to some men. But it's not, if it was the pheromone, then the man who had the pheromone should be the most attractive man to all of the women in the study. And that isn't the case. So often what these studies are actually looking at is smell. So we do all have individual smells and smell does seem to be a part of attraction. Again, there have been some claims that we can smell people's immune systems, which again is something that animals can do. And there is some evidence that we might be able to detect differences in immune systems. But when you actually look at whether this is used as part of picking a partner in real life, it doesn't seem to be important. So we think that smell and scent plays a role. But again, a lot of that may well be learnt, that we learn to be attracted to certain scents because they are familiar to us or we've associated them with positive emotions in the past. We do know that people who lose their sense of smell often find that their sex drive is reduced and their enjoyment of sex is reduced. And sometimes they can struggle more with relationships. So we do think there's a role there. But the evidence for pheromones is is very lacking. We don't even know, humans don't even seem to have the organ that most animals use to detect pheromones. So if we are detecting them, we're doing them in a very different way to other animals. And yeah, there's very little good evidence that we can detect and use them. Let's move on to the final part of love, attachment. What role does brain chemistry play in keeping us together? The two chemicals that seem to be most important for this are oxytocin and vasopressin, which are very closely related chemicals. And it seems like on average, women are more responsive or at least female animals are more responsive to oxytocin, men and male animals to vasopressin, but both are affected by both. And in some cases, the chemicals activate the same receptors in the brain. So teasing them apart is quite challenging. So I'll just say oxytocin, but it may also be vasopressin a lot of the time as well. So a lot of what we know about long-term bonding actually comes from studying a specific type of vole called a prairie vole. And scientists actually discovered by accident that these voles seem to be monogamous. So there were some scientists who were catching, cataloguing and releasing rodents in a a kind of prairie around their university. And they noticed that the prairie voles seemed to always turn up in pairs, whereas none of the other voles did. And this is really unusual in the rodent world. 
monogamy is almost unknown. So this was kind of a huge breakthrough. Wow, there's there's this animal that's monogamous and they found out that they bond, they live together, they even raise their offspring together. So the fathers contribute to raising the offspring, which again is really unusual in rodents. So scientists started studying what was different about these voles compared to a very closely related species called montane voles who aren't monogamous. And they found that their this, these chemicals, oxytocin and vasopressin, were really important. They found that prairie voles have a very, very long mating session when they first meet and are attracted to each other. And during that session, these chemicals get released and they trigger this bonding. So if you put two prairie voles together and they're allowed to mate, they will then be bonded and they will then choose to spend time with each other over other prairie voles. Um, which doesn't happen in the montane voles. So they worked out that these two chemicals were important. So then they thought, well, if we give these chemicals to the montane voles, maybe that'll make them monogamous. But it didn't. And it turned out that that was because the montane voles don't have receptors for those chemicals in the important regions of the brain for bonding. And that was particularly the reward networks of the brain, whereas the prairie voles do have them there. So it seems like having this marathon mating session causes lots of oxytocin to be released and that then activates the reward networks of the brain and the voles come to associate that rewarding feeling with being close to their partner and that drives them to stay close to them. And we think that this is something evolution has kind of co-opted from a chemical that's important for bonding, usually mothers in the animal kingdom, but also fathers in humans and in some other species with their offspring. So when a female animal gives birth, a lot of oxytocin is released. And scientists think that that triggers them to kind of start looking after their baby. So for example, rats that have never given birth will completely ignore a baby rat if you put it in their pen. But if they have recently given birth, they will look after it. So it seems to trigger this kind of bonding behaviour. So the idea is that that marathon mating session causes some some sort of activation um, and causes the release of these same chemicals that you get, the vole would get when it gave birth. And then because they've got receptors in their reward system, that triggers this bonding thing. And it's obviously a lot more difficult to study in humans, but there have been studies that do suggest that we also have receptors for vasopressin and oxytocin in the reward systems of our brains and that we are sensitive to these chemicals and they are triggered when we either when we have sex, but also when we have close physical contact with other humans or even with other animals. Um, we can get oxytocin release from petting a dog. And actually, recent studies have found that feeling close to people, even if it's not physically, can cause the release of oxytocin as well. So there was a study that found that children got oxytocin release when they spoke to their parents on the phone. So in humans, at least, with our kind of the way our brains have changed and this, so this chemical is no longer just a sexually kind of bonding thing. It's also been co-opted into bonding us in lots of different ways as well. And we should just add, if you text your mother or your partner, that's not good enough. You have to speak to them over the phone. 
Yes, so it did find that that voice contact, but I I would have thought that Zoom would do the same thing as well. So um, yeah, it does seem, and we also know that having a really strong social network, having some strong social relationships is really protective for your health. Um, So people who have close relationships, even if it's only one or two, are less likely to get ill as they get older and they even live longer. And one idea is that actually oxytocin might be part of what's responsible for this because the release of oxytocin, one of the things it does is it damps down our fear response, our kind of anxiety, the chemicals that are released when we're afraid. And this could help us with bonding because it kind of helps us get over that idea of we don't really want people in our personal space but if it's someone you're close to who causes the release of oxytocin then we're fine getting close to them so we think that that damping down of the stress response might be why having close personal relationships can be really good for your health because we know that having heightened anxiety stress responses over a long period of time is really detrimental to your health so I think this is really important, particularly at the moment where a lot of people are very isolated, that you might not be able to get the hugs that would be the easiest way to release oxytocin, but actually feeling close to someone by talking to them, by calling them on Zoom, by checking in on them, that can have some of the effects as well, just kind of showing that you care. Ginny, you've taken us on a whistle-stop tour of some of the most exciting areas of cognitive psychology and behavioural neuroscience. There are plenty more featured in Overloaded, which I should say is out now in all good bookshops. And behavioural neuroscience is a really fast-moving field. What is coming down the pipeline? What are you looking forward to seeing in the future and what should we be looking out for? Oh, well, I mean, there is, it's changing kind of every day. And I think actually there's some really interesting stuff that's going to be coming out of the pandemic because we've mentioned a few times how hard it is to do experiments on humans because ethically you can't isolate people or put them under prolonged stress for a year and see how it affects their mental health. But in this horrible time that we've all been living through, there's been a kind of a natural experiment happening. We've all had to completely change the way we behave and we've all been experiencing a prolonged stressor. And there's some really interesting research that there are some scientists who've been right from the beginning, who've been surveying people, asking them questions about their mental health, doing experiments to see how their attention might be affected by all these different things. And I think there might be a kind of some good to come out of this awful time in that we might learn some things about how our brains respond to stress that might lead us to be able to help people in the future. Because if we can find out who have been protected against stress during this time who have been okay despite everything that's been going on that could teach us some really interesting stuff about resilience that we haven't been able to learn before so I think that is some quite exciting research that scientists just couldn't have done if it hadn't been for the pandemic Um, and I'm hopeful that yeah that might be Uh, a little bit of a bright side, some good things that might have come out of this time. 
Love to see something good coming out of this <laughs> dreadful, dreadful year that we've had. Ginny, thank you so much for joining us on the How To Academy podcast. Thanks so much for having me. This week's guest was Ginny Smith. The episode was produced and presented by me, Vas Christodoulou. If you enjoyed our conversation, why not join us for upcoming live streams with some of the most exciting figures in psychology and neuroscience. From Carl Dyseroff, the founder of Optogenetics, to neurosurgeon Rahul Jandial. You can find them both on our website. Thanks for listening. Listening.